Welcome to the Sex Cafe Podcast. Today we are going to be covering a very interesting topic. We're going to talk about the health, especially the sexual and reproductive health of uh, gay and other same-sex loving men. So today with me, I have a wealth of knowledge in this panel, and I will let each of them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Christopher Blackwell, and I'm an associate professor here in the College of Nursing at UCF, and I direct our acute care MP program, and my area of scholarship is in mostly gay men's health. So besides doing gay men's health, you also do clinical practice, Chris, I as do. well, right? I do, yes. And it's interesting, my clinical practice is quite divergent from my scholarship area. I'm pulmonary critical care nurse practitioner, and so I work in both the skilled facility, uh, working with pulmonary rehab patients, and then I also work in the hospital, mostly critical care environments which is very very interesting as well so to my right i have hi i'm daniel garner quintero i'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified clinical trauma professional here at caps ucf counseling and psych services hey and i can't wait to dig deeper into what caps is doing for our ucf population as well and to my right i also have Fantastic. I'm Eric Scrimshaw. I am the chair of population health sciences out at the College of Medicine. And my work focuses largely on research in LGBT health disparities, focusing mainly on HIV prevention for gay and bisexual men. Which is a topic that definitely we need to cover today as part of the health and preventative efforts that we can do on that end as well. So as an icebreaker, can we start by telling our listeners in this conversation, just friends talking about their different experiences and over a cup of something, a, a warm beverage. What are we having? today hot chocolate oh yeah how about that nice. <laughs> the inner child in me came out <laughs> i'm having a ceylon tea oh. <laughs> and colombian coffee black <laughs> i am actually having a french rose coffee right is a, a little darker brew and i like the bold flavor of that darker diversity brew. in the drinks here yeah <laughs> right sure. diversity of perspectives diversity in the drinks i love it Let's get started with uh, definitions for our listeners. So when we say gay and other same-sex loving men, how do we typically categorize them? Because I, I, my understanding is that it's going to be different if we're doing it for research, if we're doing it for clinical practice. How do we define this population? I can take a stab at that. I mean, it very much depends for, for both for research and, and our own experiences identity and behavior often don't match and so we can think of ourselves as gay and bisexual but maybe not engage in those behaviors and we may engage in those behaviors and still think of ourselves as having not necessarily thinking of ourselves as gay and so in terms of research that's that gets really complicated because so sometimes we're interested in how people think and identify and so that will be how we look for or define sexuality in that particular instance in my work we're often look in HIV prevention we're looking at behavior we want to know what you know, sexual acts you're having with other men because that's what potentially places you at risk. So we don't really care if you think of yourselves as gay or straight or anything else. We're concerned, we're interested in what you're doing behaviorally. So it can it can be any of those depending on your your particular 
needs. Absolutely. Needs. Which which also separates kind of where you headed with your research questions, right? In the research world, there's that, that mismatch possibly between your identity and your behavior. And that kind of prompts me into mental health. So how do we deal with that mismatch? What is happening with people who cannot reconcile that identity and that behavior? The reconcile the difference between behavior and identity? Yes, and, and, and especially from the mental health perspective, what what is happening in those brains? Well, uh, not good things. I mean, just generally speaking, the, our bodies and our brains don't do well with any kind of incongruence, right? So when we have this idea or concept of ourselves in one way and then our behaviors don't match that, um, regardless of its sexual orientation or otherwise, we just don't process that very well. And so it tends to manifest in a variety of ways, depression, anxiety. I think anxiety is probably the underlying thing. The thing that kind of connects the two is the rumination on the concept, right? I keep thinking about it over and over and I can't seem to move past it. And it's that lack of confrontation and the lack of contact. Um, that's right. And we totally see this in the research world too. So we did a study very fairly early on in my career looking at gay and lesbian bisexual adolescents, tracking them over time and looking at identity change. And the ones who transitioned from maybe bisexual to gay as opposed to staying consistently bi or consistently gay over that time period, the ones who t- did a transition, even if it's toward more gay or more lesbian had more depression and anxiety than those who didn't because the there's that transition there's this adjustment period this that that it takes getting used to both i think because of the the stigma that comes at us from other people when we when we ana- make those announcements but also but also just internally we, we, it takes some time to resolve those internal conflicts and we see the same thing in our research with bisexual men the ones who identify as heterosexual but engage in behaviors that with both men and women they tend to have more depression than those who I open or more openly identified or self-identify as bi. And to add to that as well, if you look at the research that's on behaviors, I mean, Eric, I'm sure is really familiar with this in terms of prevention. Um, it's those people who are not out, those people who are who don't identify solidly as being gay, for example, are much more likely to engage in unsafe behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so that that and then that becomes an issue with our mental health as well. And um, so I think that's that's real important to indicate that you know this this down low phenomenon, for example, and and some of the other you know identity denying type of situations where people engage in more risky behaviors as a consequence. And we will see in our episode on bisexual health that some people identify as being bisexual as a coping mechanism or as a stepping stone. And uh, we will see that sexual orientation also changes over time. Now, thinking about sexual orientation of men who have sex with men and other same gender loving men, what do we know from our research in the development of this particular identity? I, I, I saw that Eric mentioned a little bit of adolescent health, and I'm, I'm intrigued about what your research has found into the drivers of those. One of the classic kind of research paradigms, that, and it's not perfect, but one of the classic ways we've looked at this is age at certain milestones. And there's no linear pathway there. But so we see some people you know, will identify first, then explore sexually 
um, with the same gender partners and then kind of come out publicly disclose. We have others who will mix that up a little bit. Um, and so there's there's no real classic or prototypical pathway of development to a gay identity. But one of the things that we do see that facilitates that kind of identity development and what we particularly call identity integration, where we're, you know, coming into our own and accepting public and publicly declaring one's sexual identity. One of the things that we really see is, you know, having the support um, both from peers, friends, and family that really facilitates that kind of identity development and the embracing of that identity. What we, what we see when there are some of these conflicts is when we have experiences with rejection, whether that's a parent with a really good friend that is now more of a, you know, where they're having difficulty, that's when we start seeing some real difficulties, either accepting themselves or we start seeing some really difficult mental health issues in terms of the, struggling with their identity. You know, one of the things I've always found interesting, and I, I would love to do some research on it sometime, but it's it's almost outside of my scope. But, you know, the nerd of me is going to come out here in a second. But but Eric Erickson, you know, is, is probably one of the most famous developmental psychologists. And he has, you know, these stages of development that he theorize almost every human has to go through and he looks at adolescence as a time of role identity versus role diffusion and one of the things I've always thought is you see a lot of and, and Daniel you could probably could come in here a little bit on this because you see it you know from a counseling perspective but you see a lot of pathologic behaviors in my you know personal experience anecdotally that you see these behaviors in gay men in particularly when they're older, you know, like drug use, for example, or, you know, risk taking behaviors in, in sex, things like that. Whereas in adolescence, in the heterosexual population, those tend to manifest earlier. And I, I've always thought, like, I wonder if, if there's this identity problem that's happening that's requiring gay men almost in, in some circles to develop their identity later. And so they're having these pathological Peter Pan, you know, type of behavior. Yeah, yeah. You know. No, I actually think that's a great point because this is, you know, we talk about this all the time, this idea of kind of delayed development, especially around identity, because the reality is, is we're talking about adolescence, but in a lot of ways, the foundation's been set and laid long before then, right? Like, I've seen countless times where parents are talking about a young boy as like a lady killer one day, right? And this idea of kind of assumed heteronormativity. So the first kind of step for them is not the same step as their kind of heterosexual peers. They first and foremost have to reconcile the fact that they're feeling something that doesn't appear to be the same thing that other people are feeling. And I think that's that's actually one of the problems that exists in the research is that we often are using kind of a heteronormative lens to even approach the concept of development and not considering the possibility that their development is just on a completely different trajectory. Now, is this the chicken or the egg kind of question? Is, are, are, is the social stigma, for example, associated with that identity development driving it or is the development driving the stigma? around it because think about it when an adolescent comes out and say i don't know i want to pursue this career there may be stigma around that career but it's not that life defining mm -hmm. as an adolescent coming out and saying you know I'm, i i deviate from this heteronormativity rule that everybody knows mm -hmm. 
mm, how is this pushing me? Yeah, I'm gonna leave the chicken and egg to the researchers. You know, that's just not my my cup of tea, you know, as I sip on my Ceylon here. Uh, I think that the, for me, the bigger thing is helping clients kind of tease that apart, kind of whether or not one preceded the other. It's a fascinating research question. I just don't know what clinical relevance it has to kind of the formation of their identity. And I do think one of the things you said there is really important is that it's it does feel very central to the core of their being, right? We, we, we started off by talking, how do we even define this concept of a gay man, right? And for me, it's it's oftentimes kind of giving it back to the client, like what does that mean to you, right? Because I see all kinds of identities on paperwork. I'm like, I don't know what this word means. Um, and I have to just ask directly about it. And and if a client hasn't thought very deeply about it, then it's, it's a real challenge to like, let's start by unpacking like even what that means. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Before we give it back to the researchers, can you tell us a little bit more about the center where you are Absolutely. working? At? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I'm full time at uh, the University of Central Florida Counseling and Psych Services. So that's oh, nice. on campus. Yes. Go nice charge on. So that's here on campus. Uh, we are a service that's only for students. My bosses will love that we're talking about this, by the way. And so we see students, uh, anybody that's actively enrolled in classes can come in for services. We start with a simple intake. I say simple. It's actually quite grueling and time intensive. <laughs> uh, just a lot of paperwork. And then we figure out what services are, are best for them. We do operate in kind of a short-term model, so four to six is kind of our average for students. But we've tried to find really creative ways to close the gaps and needs. So for instance, we offer group therapy as a, a way to kind of facilitate kind of more connection. That's weekly instead of every other week or every couple of weeks. Uh, we actually I used to run our GLB support group on campus. Um, that used to be the GLB T Q plus support group uh, and we realized a lot of our trans and non-binary students had specific needs and so we spun them off into their own group which eventually turned into like two groups so we've got a lot of services that way <laughs> uh, so that's uh, we do a lot of different things we have three different four different treatment teams on campus um, oh sorry three we um, we transitioned one out so we've got an eating disorder team we've got a trauma-informed care team which I used to head and then our trans care team which helps uh, provide kind of gender affirming services for our trans and non-binary students on campus. That's fascinating. And and it's so interesting. Um, What I love about this podcast is that we all come together and know these resources that were probably next door. They have been there all the time and we didn't know about them. And it's opening those doors for everyone. Pretty much on every campus at this point too. So yeah, we're downtown, we're here on main campus and we're uh, even got some psychologists. They're not affiliated with CAPS, but over at the medical centers. (laughs) And as I promised, we're giving it back to the researchers and see what is research showing about that mixture. We are in this podcast, we're understanding health in its original conception as mental, social, and physical well-being, right? So I'm just curious about what research has been showing about the he- the general health. What are some concerns? What are some positive assets that we can talk about uh, on the health? Again, understood as a broad concept of gay and other same gender loving men. Yeah, well, I I, uh, I think that the biggest impact we're seeing is with PrEP. 
in terms of HIV prevention. And um, so for our listeners who are not familiar um, yes. on HIV prevention world, we have PrEP, which stands for pre-exposure prophylactic therapy. And the it's basically the use of, of one of three drugs, but the third one was just recently approved and it's not really being used that much right now, but really two drugs uh, that are oral and they're taken daily. And the data are pretty uh, significant in terms of showing that they prevent HIV uh, acquisition, which is which is great. And I think that in Europe, we've actually seen tangential numbers where we're seeing declines in actual infections that we we're not seeing translate yet here in the United States. Somewhat, Eric and Eric is going to add into that. I can see, but the 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 biggest reason for that has been access. And I think that that's an issue, not just in HIV, but that's in, in everything looking at gay men's health. Uh, umbrella is access and fear of providers and, and this fear of judgment going in to see. And I, I hear it all the time from, from just friends. You know, like, oh, if I, I don't want to, you know, I'm afraid if I tell them I'm gay, they're going to think this or that. And, and I said, well, then go find somebody that's not going to think that way. You know, we, let me help you find somebody. But yeah, oh, oh, there's there's definitely some interesting research showing disclosure of sexual orientation to providers, right? Yeah. So that's something we can definitely discuss. Daniel, you had some ideas. Well, well no, that. I just I when when uh, when Chris mentioned that, it made me think of some of my own experiences and 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 even conversations I've had with clients. Where first of all, I don't think providers always ask about it, right? I don't think providers ask about sex in general. Uh, as a clinician, you know, mm -hmm. one of the questions I ask pretty much every client that comes through my door is around like do you have any concerns related to sexual health wellness function are you experiencing pleasure pain like is there anything going on just to kind of create an environment where they can talk about it but the other thing that i've often seen in kind of health fields and in my own as well mental health fields is there's sometimes this assumption that the issue lies with the identity right you know i go in with a cold and the first swear to holy moses the first question i'm going to get from my provider is when's the last time you had an hiv test and i'm like i've been married for seven years in a monogamous relationship like this is a non-issue but i and i've had to literally go toe to toe with physicians and say listen you can run whatever test you want but i promise you i'm not paying for it i'm not going to authorize my insurance to pay for it like because they get very in exactly and I've had trans clients report the same things around like hormones like there's this assumption that the issues with the hormones and it's just so that's one of the things that really frustrates mm -hmm. me is the lack of knowledge um, from providers and the assumptions that they make around it so perhaps it drives back to a concept that we use in research quite often which is the ecologic fallacy and it's thinking that what is true for a population remains true for a single individual and making that translation sometimes is difficult right Eric do you have any interesting insights into this <laughs> ecologic fallacy that we have been talking about yeah I, I think in particular, when we linking back to our earlier conversation about how identity and behavior don't always match, and then thinking about the lifespan as well. So we've got all the way from from you know early adolescence all the way to senior care. The LGBT spectrum includes all of these, right? So you know, there's a lot of assumptions that get made in the clinical encounter both nursing medical etc that you know who get who gets offered an hiv test who gets offered pre-exposure prophylaxis who gets you know tested for stis all of these sort of things you know 
should in some ways be offered to everybody because all of them could very well be but then we get we run into the the issue of why are you offering me an HIV test when I'm here when I'm here for something completely different and so I, I struggle with this a lot you know working at the medical school you know how much do we want our young physicians to you know to you know, offer services to everyone. And not miss that opportunity. And not miss that opportunity, exactly. Just because you assumed he was straight, just because you assumed she was heterosexual, just because you assumed she was, you know, a cisgender woman, etc. All of the you know, all of these are are really problematic if we if we miss them. But at the same time, as a consumer of services, I, I, I totally have been there and I know exactly the same feeling. So how do we strike that balance? I do think that what you're pointing out there is a real tension that we haven't been able to figure out yet. And I recognize that tension as a provider. I think I'm also kind of operating from a place of privilege because when I'm working with a client, right, I have 50 minutes with them, 90 if I need it. And I can see them more often, right? If you're a doctor, you're relying on a handful of tests and and doing that in like a 15-minute visit. (laughs) I know, I know. So I I do recognize that that there's a, a slightly different approach and that's getting into a much bigger topic in and of itself but it's something we have to be like mindful of I think and I I think this for me this gets back to the issue of the importance of having a medical care home that you see consistently to get to know you over time um, and not have every medical encounter with the medical system be a first time meeting because then we can get to know you we can understand your the context of your health because it gets fragmented otherwise. exactly exactly that's unfortunately just not available to everybody yeah. not to most people and that goes back to the access issue as well now i had mentioned this you know tangential like meaning that going through you know prep going the access of prep in europe being so great and that having this you know through effect or throughput effect i should say into reducing the hiv numbers do you eric see that coming to the us soon absolutely so more so so if we look at Big the big um, HIV epidemic hotspots: New York City, where I was previously, San Francisco, LA. You know, pre-exposure prophylaxis has really been rolled out free for pretty much anyone. Now there's still barriers. There's still stigma about taking it. There's still misunderstanding. So there's still, you know, the people who need it most, meaning our black and brown brothers and sisters, frequently are not the first ones to get it. So there's a diffusion of innovation issue there. But what we are definitely seeing real changes in new cases of HIV in those cities. And I think think it's very different here in Florida because we're not making it widely available. We're not making it as affordable and accessible as we need to. And that's going it's it's just going to be a problem in the long run because we're going to end up as a state paying Which is also paying concerning because 
because Florida has three of the top 20 counties that are yes. accounting for most of the HIV cases. And to add to it, though, I, I, Florida has made PrEP available. People just need to know that and get out there and access it. And it's, that's a lot easier said than done. And, yeah, you, and, and Yeah, and you bring up a really good point about minorities having access. I've seen where Latin gay men are so scared to go that, that maybe they're not documented citizens. And so they're really scared to access the health department, for example, to get PrEP because they're worried that they're going to be reported. And so that's a concern that, that needs to be brought up. And we need to be showing people, we don't care about your, your immigration status. We just want to protect you and, and the others that you're interacting with. Now, when we say free, we also say no, we, we mean no money out of pocket, but there is, there is a cost to that, right? On ballpark figure, how much is a month of treatment? I actually saw my bill the other day and it's $1,800. That's how much the, the pharmacy charges the insurance for 30, yeah, for for 30 pills. Yeah, yeah that's about. Yeah, I think about. it's, I want to say it was somewhere around 27,000, I think was the last estimate that I read. Correct. Which should be covered as well by the yes. new, by the new initiatives as well. I should point out real quick, just as an interruption, you, PrEP is available on campus. You can get a prescription through the Student Health Center. So for those who do not know, that's, that's absolutely an option. That's amazing because that's the kind of resources we want to leave up there with this podcast, right? Research bells just went off, Eric. We, we need to do some research on this, man. <laughs> Now we have talked about PrEP and HIV, and normally when we talk about gay men, that's kind of the first thought that comes to mind, right? Uh, it's the, the statistics of HIV and the HIV epidemic have been driving and decimating the population for a while. But what other concerns should we have when it comes to gender identity, specifically when we talk about gay men? Think, let's think about, for example, on the social health. Uh, about bullying and ha hate crimes. Let's go in and let's explore that avenue. I was going to say even outside of just bullying and hate crimes from a social health perspective, LGBTQ youth still make up a wide disparity in homeless youth, right? Like, like absolutely just being abandoned by family as a result of their identity. And that is going to increase their risk factors because how are you going to fund your life if you don't have family to support you? And those outcomes that will come from absolutely. that, even if you make that a short period of homelessness, yeah, that you outcomes. can provide resources, the outcomes catching up with your peers for that small period is going to be challenging well, and that assumes that that's the first adverse childhood experience they've had at that point right like if you've got an ace score higher to begin it's not a what resources are available for our youth who are in that process as unfortunate as it is the one i'm most familiar with here in orlando would be the zebra coalition probably the biggest one i know they've had some challenges this last year with some funding being cut at the state level but um, that's probably still the biggest resource and they're great about helping even when they can't absolutely like provide the the housing themselves is kind of uh, offering additional resources and then the center downtown um, actually has this great resource on their website like a pdf available that you can download of all of these different uh, lgbtq inclusive organizations that can help with a variety of things i helped a, a client or i provided them the information i don't think they followed through on it but um for a, to try to get, help them get out of a domestic violence situation and i found the resources through the center so Besides social health, how about mental health? What issues, for example, we have seen in, in my own research, suicide rates going up. What other kind of mental health issues? Oh, you already mentioned anxiety and depression. Yeah. What other mental health issues, or if we want to expand on these ideas as well? 
Yeah. So obviously anxiety, depression, we sometimes joke they're kind of the common cold of mental illness. So, you know, at some point, most of us are going to struggle with that. So trauma is certainly going to be a big one. I know that at UCF here, we saw an 8% increase in the number of students, and this is just general um, population, presenting with trauma-based concerns uh, over the last couple of years. I think some of that's been very much driven by COVID. It's easy to avoid things when you're busy, 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 but when the world stops, suddenly you're confronted with stuff. And the, and the social isolation that comes with being being taking appropriate public health practices and staying socially distanced does also give you know those those relationships are so critical and when we when we you know, remove ourselves from those sources of support, it can be really difficult. Simultaneously, that isolation increases, when we saw this, an increase in the number of suicides, uh, death by suicides in the last couple of years, and domestic violence amongst the LG, amongst the population in general. But, you know, we know that uh, gay men in particular are, you know, victims of this on a regular basis, and it's just not talked about. And then the other one I would probably add to the mixture is, is body issues, body image, eating, dis- eating concerns, body dysmorphia, stuff like that uh, is fairly large amongst gay men. And you know the interesting thing if you look at the data on uh, domestic violence and gay relation gay male relationships there's also this perception among the public that they're not as important. Well, you're two men. Can't you stand up for yourself? Can't you physically defend yourself? And so there's this almost overarching stigma in less resources and less, you know, consideration given to domestic violence situations with gay men. So that's that's an interesting, you know, point too. Sad point, but it's it's the reality of it. We are observing in a paper that we just completed <laughs> that the prevalence of obesity is actually lower among gay men. And one of the explanations <laughs> that we're giving is indeed the fact that there's those body dysmorphia, there's this expectation, societal expectation of muscularity driven. And you know, I think that some of that too, believe it or not, I think is driven from pornography. Because pornography is so widely consumed among everyone, not just gay men, but everyone. But the the models that are often used in pornographic imaging and videography is very, you know, yeah, muscular, masculine type of, of um, you know, caricatures. And I think people often feel that they're less than if they can't meet that standard. So that's why I think. And then swipe left, swipe right are, are dating apps and where people meet potential partners is also very heavily based on your photo and and so there's there's a classic classic article on your picture is your bait and and it's so much so about did you know that there are now companies out there that will you can hire them i was just reading about this the other day that they will come to your house and do photos with you to put on the apps so that, yeah, so that you can get the most and bet, clicks or most and I bet, clicks. And I bet it's based on all this research that has been done. I was reading another paper the other day that actually stated that men who pose with cat, this heterosexual men who pose with cats in their picture get less likes than men who doesn't. When you match for age, when you match for location, showing up with a cat in your in your main picture in the apps doesn't get you as many likes. Well, I wonder if it's feminizing. I wonder if people see it as feminizing. That's exactly what yeah, I was yeah. yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, there's something very gendered about that. I discriminate against cat owners, but that when I was single, but that's because I'm allergic. <laughs> I had no choice. There was. 
Well, and you know, you mentioned the, the apps, and I will say that there's the other horrible social cost of the apps has been the closure of gay bars nationwide. And the gay bar establishment used to be, in the clubs, used to be a real major socialization factor for, for gay both, people. Both and positive and negative. Yeah, so it, it, it facilitated connections, but it also facilitated so alcohol yeah, and drug right. use. Smoking Some behavior. Yeah, that's and true. Drugs. And smoking. Come yeah. think about it. It, has, it was the de facto community center, right? It was not you know, government-sponsored community centers. And I, I wouldn't be surprised that COVID has now had, you know, for for bars and clubs that were, were on the edge already yes. with diminished use due to apps and websites, I think there's going to, that that could have easily pushed some off the edge in, ter in terms of being able to be financially sustainable. I think you're right, Eric. That is a real loss. I, I agree. Because I, I think what you were saying is really important is around that socialization factor. Because, you know, going back to kind of development, when you recognize in an early age, right, that you're different than other people, but you don't necessarily have the resources to talk about that, there's been this assumption of heteronormativity that you have to work through first, then you're often discovering sexuality through pornography and the things you can find online, True. or God forbid, I mean, just as bad through, you know, the media, which is often massive caricatures. And so it kind of like creates this kind of shameful space, you know, internally that you become very protective of. Yeah. and. But simultaneously experience a drive to kind of fulfill, right? But I can also remember like being being young myself in the in my twenties when I was coming out, you know, and I remember going to my first you know, gay bar. I was I was both horrified and yet completely relieved that there were other people like me out there, you know? I, I mean, I grew up in a real conservative environment with, with mostly athletes in my family, and I never heard positive things about gay people. And so when I, when I stepped foot into, you know, Southern Nights for the first time, and for those that don't know, that's a local gay bar here in Orlando. You know, it was, it was a sense of, of belonging almost, you know? But there's almost two competing, like, instinctual drives there, right? There's yeah. the, there's the, the, kind of flee from drive, right? Because this is like everything I've been taught to stay away from and hide. And then there's also the attach, right? Attachment is actually our first survival instinct. Yeah. It's how we get, you know, make through, make it through most of our life until about 12 years old. And so it creates this weird space where we feel both fulfilled and kind of shameful. And then when you add the apps, it creates this possibility for ritualization to begin. And so it gets very, very kind of confusing. Mm -hmm. And, and human beings are inherently social animals. We're looking for others like us to affiliate and to identify with and reinforce those identities. And that's really critical when you think that you might be part of a stigmatized group or a group that's that's looked on negatively by others. You, know, you wanna find others like you. And that's that's always been a critical function in the coming out process is to you know to find your community and sometimes that's very it's not the mainstream gay community maybe maybe it's 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 a niche that you're particularly that speaks to you more but it, it's still finding that community is, is critical and you hear that a lot people say my chosen family and yeah, this yeah. is my chosen family so now that, let's talk a little bit about the fragmentation of that gay community as well, because uh, sometimes you will see that research, for example, or the mainstream media or clinical practice will put everyone in the same bag. But there's some particular identities that 
either play or don't play well with each other, right? So there's there's a tribe. So there's a couple of interesting papers out there talking about tribes and how they describe and how people adscribe to those tribes themselves. But I I think in the end, it's a little bit of internalized homophobia within the actual tribes. And for our listeners, internalized homophobia is this concept of uh, this, there's a heteronormative world, right? A, a world that operates based on the assumptions of people being heterosexual, boy likes girl. Anything that deviates from that standard is considered threatening. So at some point, even sexual minority people will internalize that idea that uh, this is threatening and this should not happen even when you belong to that minority. So internalized homophobia is one of the ways that we say it's kind of a defense mechanism almost is that will happen to them but not to me. And, and I think it incorporates a little self-hate too, you know, sometimes, yeah. You know. It's, you know, how, how, does our, how does the stigma from the external world, from society get inside and under your skin and and start to affect your own mental and physical health is through this kind of internal self-loathing and lack of self-acceptance that is internalized homophobia. And again, you go back to a community that supports that point of view as well. So you were saying, for example, there's that community of mask for mask, yeah, right? right? So it's yeah. the people who have that same thought of people should behave and look a certain something way. Something wrong with you if you're feminine. There's right. something wrong with you if you are into this kind of music or that kind of music or there's something wrong with you if you dress in leather or you know those all those things you yes. know yes or if you attend this kind of bar and not that kind of bar right and then the, and then there's the ageism within the gay community which which very much plays into this in terms of you know young and beautiful and after age 30 it's all it's all over <laughs> um, so <laughs> i know i know what you're saying it's definitely that perspective maybe we can expand it to 40 <laughs> i'm basically dead <laughs> No, I, so I think you raised a good point, though, that it's not just internalized homophobia. I do think that's a big part of it, right? But I think it's beyond that. I think it's ageism. I think it's sexism, right? This whole idea of being feminine is is a bad thing. I think there's a lot of racism that's kind of rampant in it as well. I mean, how often, and, and then, you know, ableism. I mean, any ism that's present in the wider culture, I say to my clients all the time, culture is like, water to a fish right even if you're not aware of it you're breathing it so you can't help but soak some of that in so if it's in the culture it's in you it's not a question of if but how much and how much work have you done to kind of you know externalize that to deconstruct those narratives there are some researchers too that have have theorized that homophobia in and of itself meaning a fear or hatred of gay people that you see you know mostly you think of it in, in straight in the straight world but is actually based in anti-feminism and that you know that the perception among you know straight men looking down on gay men for being feminine is really rooted in a dislike of a feminine behavior even in women so it's uh, it's it's interesting how some of that extrapolates. When it creates interesting kind of double binds as well, right? So like socially, there is almost a, a greater acceptance for the idea of like a butch lesbian than there is a feminine man, yes. right? Because it's understandable that a woman would want to be like a man, but why would a man want to be like a woman? <laughs> wow, you never right? thought about it from that perspective, yeah. Daniel. Yeah. Well, and then the, the lipstick lesbian is fetishized. Correct. Um, and so they're not looked at as, you know, oh, they're sexy, they're hot. That's a sexual turn on for most, 
or not most, but a lot of straight men. And so, you know, again, it, it leads to this to this standard of it's okay for that feminine lesbian, but it's not okay for that feminine man. So now as a balance in this podcast, we have talked a lot about disease and drivers and health issues. Are there any advantageous health disparities that we can talk about? Is there any advantages that our research has shown for example my research has shown regardless of the drivers less obesity that's at least one point in cardiovascular health prevention right give that one point is there anything else that you have discovered either as anecdotally or there, in your there's new data coming out recently actually and and i think this actually demonstrates a shift that LGBT individuals may tend to have greater educational attainment than some other some other groups and and the drivers behind that are actually are very interesting so there's this hypothesis of the best little boy in the world hypothesis where you know gay or bisexual men lesbian women as well I suspect would in the attempt in the understanding that maybe they are a little feminine maybe they are feeling a little not like the other kids will try their will try even harder to be as good at school and other kind of academic pursuits because they know perhaps that they're not going to be the athlete and the the star quarterback of the football team and therefore you know continue that in through their academic careers that was not always the case earlier on in the literature we would see a lot of experience and i think this probably still does hold for some for some lgbt youth that you know in terms of dropping out of high school or being homeless and therefore not being able to pursue higher education but i think we're seeing we're seeing now a shift in that trend see those adverse childhood events we drive so i think it differs a lot between individual youth and their opportunities and experiences and privilege but at the same time, on average, I guess we're start we're starting to see gay men have have greater educational attainment than straight men. And I anticipate that as that shift happens, there's more representation there for the new generations coming up. So, Chris, I heard you come from a sports family. What have we seen in sports? for the gay community specifically? I think it depends on which sport you look at. I think that overall, I think that we have seen a, a push where uh, coming out and you know looking at, especially the generational differences with you know younger athletes, it's not as big of a deal to them. You know, it really isn't. Whereas the older ones were more likely to say, oh, well, I don't want to be in the locker room with somebody that's that way. But I but I do believe that things are changing. However, if you look at, I'm just going to pick soccer, there's a lot of, of really awful examples of where stadiums have chanted anti-gay epithets during games. But on the flip side of that, if you look at the reaction from the organizations, right, what are they doing? They're saying, okay, you want to say those things during games? We won't have games. And they're canceling games. They're they're saying you know until you guys can behave yourselves and and treat everybody with respect, you know we're not we're not going to play. And so I think that we we are seeing that we're seeing athletes come out, you know, in professional sports. We had an NFL player that came out that is not just retired. Like that's when you see a lot of them come out is after retirement they feel safer, and it's it's no one talks about that now. You know, everyone's yeah. like it's a normal thing. You know, and so I think that things are slowly changing, and I think that 
15, 20 years from now, I would predict that you know I, it's going to be a non-issue. But at the same time, you look at these things like the, the Don't Say Gay bill that we're fighting here in Florida and these things that create increasing stigma, we could easily erode some of that, in my opinion. That's not a data-based opinion, but it's just my opinion that that could happen. I almost see that as like a reaction formation to the, yes. the cultural shifts, yes. right? It's this, it's this kind of dying breath. I'm trying to kind of turn back the hands of time but I just especially seeing the reaction from some of the high schoolers it's just I don't see I you can codify what you want to codify but it, it's very clear that it's not going to have the impact that you're hoping it's going to have the impact of. and that the sponsor of that bill has even said that he's even said well now if you come out as gay everyone loves you and you're popular and you're and I'm like what like uh, really that's celebrity Wes yeah, his, his real word yes you become a celebrity. Times have changed since the 80s. <laughs> the dinosaurs in the room, apparently. I just don't... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would never have come out in my high school. That's for sure. So we have seen representation that matters, actually, right? Seeing people who are more educated, seeing people who are present in sports. In our everyday life, we have uh, politicians, we have scientists, we have all sorts of people and and everyday people as well right we have your hairdresser or your cab driver yeah, your uber never heard of that one right you have your uber driver right so what can our listeners do to be more supportive of an inclusive culture to live in a better society well i think if you're gay and you're listening come out that we have clear data that show being out being proud being living an authentic you is the best thing that that our community can do that to show people we're here and we're we we want the same exact rights and privileges that you have and so i think that that's really really important what else i mean there's allies are, are obviously essential right yeah i would say as you know for allies listening making sure their voice is heard making sure that they've created safe spaces where coming out is actually possible right i agree that the that coming out is one of the most important things we do unfortunately it's not like something we necessarily arrive at it's an ongoing process sure. i think that's often kind of missed but i think for people to come out it, it's it's important that they have a safe space right where they know that they're gonna be accepted. We have seen some initiatives where these safe spaces are labeled, right? So for example, at UCF, there's the yep. safe zone and all the people who have taken the training actually mark or brand their, their space as a safe zone. I, I commend it for what it's worth and, and it does a great job uh, getting the word out, but I really wish every single space was a safe zone to the point that we don't need to live. Right, wouldn't that be nice? Right? I actually facilitate that training. <laughs> so uh, I do the second of the advocates uh, and we've we've shifted it a little bit over the last couple of years to talk more about some of the, the things we've discussed today, especially around privilege uh, and how to foster kind of those spaces. But I always start my conversation off by saying, and even though I use the term today, and I do think safe space is an important thing to create. But I think safe space is something we as a community create, right? I think what I often try to promote in these trainings is the idea of a brave space, right? That I can't necessarily say that everything that's gonna happen in here is gonna feel completely safe or good. And, right, coming out is still a good thing in the long run, even if it kind of sucks in the short term. It gets better, right? <laughs> and I think those labels, stickers, flags, etc., do serve a purpose, you know, to remind 
gay youth who are having a bad day, who see that in an office or who see that walking around UCF, that, that you know, things are getting better or will get better and that there are supports out there. So, you know, qualitatively, we hear that all the time, that, that, that those do mean something to folks. And it's not, it's not just a throwaway in some ways. And here at UCF, it's a pink triangle, but out there in the community, it's still a pink triangle, right? No? I don't know what you're talking about. No. The, the <laughs> label that you get, the sticker that you get in your door? I don't know. The one I give out is the, like, the circle, the rainbow circle oh. with the... I don't think so. I've been doing this for... I thought it was the cir- it was the pink triangle and it said ally across it, right? Well, there's like four different like ally stickers for it. Because oh. there's like secular ally and LGBTQ ally and... Trust me, walk up and down the hallways of caps. There's ally stickers everywhere. <laughs> That's wonderful. And I was saying, like, out there in the community, how people would identify besides the rainbow flag. Yes. What other indications yeah, of safe spaces do we have? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the bear paws and there's other flags and stuff that, that are within the community, too. So, yeah. You know, the other thing that I think Eric brought this up as in the beginning of our, of our discussion is really educating healthcare professionals on and and in my it's so basic like in 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 my program for example when I'm teaching people how to become nurse practitioners or even nurses you've got to know how to do an effective health history and you start off you don't say I'm really sorry to have to ask you this but do you have sex with men I mean no it's do you have sex with men women or both and let's talk about it and, and let's identify the risk and let's find out ways that we can intervene here and make things better for you. And so I think that's really important to bettering our community. And in nursing, I can tell you, you're seeing this. You're seeing this, this revolution where n- younger nurses are realizing that we need to be better educated on how to treat gay folks. Mm-hmm. And so I hope medicine's following track. I think they are, yeah. I think we try. <laughs> I, th- I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges into squeeze how much can you squeeze into a curriculum and and how how much how much you know cardiovascular health can do we not include and for you know so there's only so many hours so many hours but i think one of the things i was going to chime in on here is i think we as an lgbt community have often self-selected out of certain professions because we thought they were going to be difficult or stigmatizing or that we we wouldn't be welcome and i think if we want to create the change in the world, whether that's the healthcare system, we're going to need those allies, but we also need to step up and become physicians ourselves, become practitioners ourselves, and be willing to become researchers ourselves. That actually circles back to that idea of a better educated generation. And on top of that, having that representation. And there's a great resource for, and they've and they've really diversified over the last few years, and that's the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association. And their name is kind of a misnomer because there is a, a huge nursing aspect of that professional group as well. And so if you're listening and you're interested in, in, in becoming a physician or another you know healthcare practitioner, there is that resource out there available for you. And if you're a gay man that's looking for, um, I don't know about therapists, I think they're on there too, but I'm thinking more like medical 
medical providers. They have a database that you can sign up for and say, I am a gay-friendly nurse practitioner. I'm a gay-friendly physician. And so they're there and you can go on and find them. So if you're in a rural area, there might just be somebody on there that's registered with that GLMA database that you can, can find. So glma.org is a great resource for you. Absolutely. And that kind of covers my next question, which was what resources are there for our allies and uh, um, listeners who may identify as gay as well? Anything else that they can reach out? I know the, the, your center, and again, is the Counseling, counseling and Psychological, psychological services. services. Yes, that's why I'm at full time. So uh, we already heard is for UCF students. How can they reach out? Yeah, so if it's a UCF student who uh, wants to engage services, they can contact the Counseling Center. The easiest way to find anything at UCF is just to Google the term UCF and what you're looking for. If you're a non-UCF student, you can reach out to me in my private practice, which you can find me through Psychology Today. And if I'm not available to help, I usually will try to assist in getting connected to the right resources. So what I'm going to say now for for our listeners, though, who would be interested in participating in, in research, we heard before how this fractioning of the community is actually affecting the data, right? So it's important that you, I will speak for all researchers here at the table, that you should join research efforts as well. It's painless, it is easy, it is secured, it is always overseen by institutional review board anonymous. that is it's anonymous, that is made in the most ethical way, and that research is what actually informs our best practices. So it's important to our listeners to join those research efforts. Any final thoughts before we wrap up for our listeners out there? I think just the most important thing is, you know, to if if you're if you're not gay and you're listening, acknowledge people's differences and acknowledge that different is okay and even though maybe you've been told otherwise through religion or through you know the, your upbringing or, or whatever you know it's okay to broaden your perspectives on things and educate yourself and find a gay friend you know because I think that makes a huge difference you know I my, my brother was a you know big football player and and uh, you know when I came out to him the, the first thing he said to me well this can't be the case because you like football and <laughs> And I said, and I still like football. You know, I think that it makes a big difference when you personally know someone who is gay. So make friends with your straight friends, gay people that are listening. <laughs> I would add, ask permission before asking <laughs> well, questions. Yeah. Sometimes the questions I get, I'm like, what question is this? Like, do you not have better things to ask the world? I would actually kind of cycling back to one of the things we talked about earlier, which was the idea of, of medical professionals kind of trying to keep up with, you know, best practices and, 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 you know, asking, you know, better questions and stuff like that is also like as a patient, right? Like say something if a provider is doing something that makes you feel uncomfortable, if they're not using the terms that are correct for you. And as a provider, try to see that as an opportunity to be called in instead of feeling called out. Well, I want to thank all three of our fantastic guests. This has been a wonderful conversation. Hopefully we will have you again in new episodes that relate to human sexuality here in the Sex Cafe podcast. This has been Dr. Humberto Lopez Castillo, your host, and we look forward to new episodes. 